This is the second example of how not to read Help My Bible is Alive over the next 30 days. Another way not to read the Bible. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, those of you here in the sanctuary, those of you watching at home. Uh, we kicked off the new year with a 30-day challenge. You commit 15 minutes every day for the next 30 days using this book as your guide. Help, My Bible is Alive, 30 Days of Learning to Love and Understand God's Word by Nicole Eunice and available wherever books are sold. Uh, it is not too late to get in on the 30-day challenge, and you do not need to be part of Ward Church to participate. You can invite family and friends to join you, and you can start the 30-day challenge at any point. A 30-day challenge Facebook group has been set up for this purpose. It was very active this last week, people posting about their journeys and encouraging each other. And on this 30-day challenge Facebook group, the author, Nicole Eunice, will be on each Monday night at 8 p.m. for a live coaching session. So we'll hope you'll take part uh, in that. And this whole idea comes from this verse in the Bible in uh, the book of Hebrews. For the Word of God, that's the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. The Word of God is alive. It's alive and active. And we say that the Word of God is alive. Of course, we, we do not mean that the Bible you know, walks and eats, but the Bible does things. The Bible penetrates, divides, judges, teaches, corrects, trains, stands firm, sustains, feeds, cleanses, renews. These are all words the Bible uses of itself. Now, I want to be clear. We do not worship the Bible. We worship God, and the Bible is not God, the Bible is not to be worshipped. There is something uh, theologians call bibliolatry. That's when the Bible actually replaces God in odd ways. That's not what we're talking about. Martin Luther said the Bible is the manger which cradles the Christ child. We don't worship the manger. We worship that which the manger holds. The only reason the Bible is significant is because it holds. It points to, it directs us to the living God. The Bible is not a thing to be worshipped. But neither is the Bible a dusty book of history. Rather, the Bible is alive. It is, when illumined by the Holy Spirit, God's unique word to me. And so reading and interacting with the Scriptures in the power of the Holy Spirit becomes a conversation in real time with the living God. It becomes alive. And this is where it gets very exciting. Today we're lifting up this aspect of the Bible. Uh, you heard it read in the psalm today. The psalmist says, your word, the Bible, your scriptures, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. The Bible is a light. The Bible illumines our path. I was thinking about this recently as I've been teaching my 15-year-old daughter to drive. 
her very first driving lesson happened right here in the Ward Church parking lot where generations of kids have learned to drive. We see moms and dads and kids in our parking lot all the time. They're not hard to identify. These cars pull in, driving really slow in circles. And it's really kind of heartwarming to see and to think about all the prayers that have been offered from our parking lot over the years and, and the way the Lord's name has been lifted with such passion. Uh, it, it really does a uh, heart uh, good. And uh, on the front of every car are these headlights. And I was telling my daughter, headlights are some of the most important pieces of equipment on a car in terms of your personal well-being. On the other hand, the radio is one of the most dangerous pieces on the car uh, in terms of distraction. And headlights, you know, have high beams and low beams, and you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And um, this sounds easy, but it's not always. In fact, I want to show you three questions taken from a real written driving test from the State of Michigan exam. Now, some of you, it's, it's been a while, so we'll cut you some slack. But these are real questions in the exam. When driving in foggy conditions, high beams will usually, is it A, cause you to see less of the road ahead? Road ahead? Is it B, help you to see more of the road ahead? Or is it C, help to reduce glare? And the correct answer is? A, very good. A lot of you said A. That's right. The, the high beams can reflect off the fog and, and, and blind you. Uh, cause less visibility. Yes, try another one. Actual uh, question from a written exam. When meeting in a car, with, meeting a car with blinding headlights, you should a use your bright lights until the other vehicle dims theirs. <laughs> Flash your lights off and on to warn the other driver. Dim your lights and then speed up to pass quickly. This, this is a real question. Look uh, D. Look toward the right side of the road. Correct answer is D, look to the right side of the road. Averting your eyes can help you avoid becoming blinded. And we'll do one more. A real question. Drivers should switch to their low beam headlights when within blank of another driver. Is it 1,000, 500, or 200? Michigan state law requires that you move to low beams when you are within 500 feet of an oncoming vehicle or when you're following a vehicle uh, by 500 feet because high beams can blind other drivers and can seriously tick them off. <laughs> so if, if, you're, if you did get those wrong and you're here in the sanctuary, would you go ahead and pass your driver's license toward the center aisle and we're going to pick those up. And if you're at home, would someone just find that shredder uh, in your house and go ahead and take care of that uh, personally? Yeah, these uh, 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 headlights are critical uh, for use in your, your car. Uh, they take a little skill. You've got to know when to use high beams and when to use low beams. You've got to know when to look here and when to look over here. You've got to know when to not shine your beams right in the face of someone else in ways that aren't helpful. And today's theme is that the Bible is a light. And you have to know how to use it. That's what this whole 30-day challenge is about. It takes a little skill. But when used properly... The light of the scriptures will allow you to see things you have previously been unable to see. You will see dangers that lie just off to the side. You will have life accidents less often. You will get lost less frequently. And you got to know when not to shine the light right in someone's face in ways that aren't helpful, no matter how well-meaning. You've known people maybe that want to take that Bible and just smack it into people's faces, and maybe it's well-meaning, but it's not always helpful. It takes some skill to do this. The Bible is a light. 
Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And this is what the psalmist is celebrating here. But a car doesn't just have lights in front, headlights on the outside pointing out. A car has lights on the inside pointing in. There are all these indicator lights inside of a car. Now, when I was taking driver's ed, uh, cars didn't have a lot of indicator lights to tell you what was wrong with the vehicle. You knew something was wrong uh, in that day when your car stopped. And you and your buddies had to get out of the car and push it all the way back to your house. But today's cars can self-diagnose. Today's cars can tell you what's wrong with them and prompt you to action. But it can, it can be dizzying and confusing, especially for a new driver. For a brand new driver, um, you know, the inside of a dashboard looks something like this. What are those hieroglyphics? What, what, uh, how do you read that? So let's take another quiz. This one is not real. This one is entirely made up by me. Uh, but I gave it to my daughter as she was learning how to read indicator lights. And let me show you a couple. When you see this on your car, this symbol right here, does this mean A, don't drive with a beach ball on your lap? Does it mean B, don't chew bubble gum while driving? Or does it mean C, there's a problem with the airbag? And you know it's C, thank you. Next one, let's, see, let's say you see this on your car, this little emblem here. Does this mean the gravy is ready? Does it mean B, the genie is starting to leak? Or does it mean the oil is low? And it means the oil is low. You're doing great on this one. Uh, yeah, let's do another one. ABS, does this mean flex your abs now? Does it mean absolutely? Or does it mean the anti-lock braking system may be off? And you know it means C. We'll do just one more. This little emblem here. Does this mean drunken robot? Does it mean wink at the person next to you? Or does it mean you have a battery problem? It means you have a battery problem. All of these indicators are designed to prompt you to action. These are telling you there is something you must do. The whole purpose of these lights is for you to do something. They will not do you any good unless you act. Now, sometimes we approach the Bible this way. We read it. The Bible shines into our life as indicators. We see things in our life, and we do absolutely nothing about it. The writer James in the Bible says, don't just read the Bible. Don't just listen to the Bible. Do what the Bible says. James, writing in the first century, was not able to use an automobile as an illustration, but he made the very same point using the illustration of a mirror. This is what James wrote in the first century. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Why do you look in a mirror every morning? It is to get a dose of reality. And then presumably you make some adjustments based on what you see. Now, I don't have as many options available to me as I used to, but presumably you look in that mirror and you then adjust your hair. You wipe that smudge off your face. You apply makeup. You go back to bed. Uh, 
If you do nothing after looking in the mirror, uh, you probably did not need to look in the mirror at all. It's kind of the whole purpose of the mirror. If your dashboard light comes on and says low tire pressure, and you never do anything about that, you, you probably don't need that light. It's not going to be helpful to you. The Bible is a light. It shines light in front of me and illuminates my path, and I see things more clearly. It shines its light on me, and I see myself more clearly. It reveals my heart. And honestly, sometimes this is painful to see yourself with greater clarity. And then I make adjustments based on how the Bible has shined into me. And if you're willing to continue this metaphor, I'd like to offer a third way to think about how the Bible serves as a light. And let me set this up by asking a question. Can a legally blind person legally drive a car? You might think the answer is no, but the answer is maybe. It depends. People of sight, we assume that blindness means complete and total darkness. It does not. There are variations. It is a spectrum. People who are blind in one eye only or who are partially blind can be aided by certain technology and helps and may be able to actually drive a car. We hear that term legally blind. You've heard people say that. I heard someone say this morning, man, my vision is so terrible, I'm like legally blind. And we wonder, are, are, there, are there illegally blind people? Because I've never heard anybody really complain about that. Like, you know, the problem with this country is the growing number of illegally blind people here. You know, if you're going to go blind, follow the process, do it legally. Um, that's not what that means. To be legally blind, your vision has to be worse than 2,200. 2,200. Meaning what other people can see at 200 feet, you can only see at 20 feet. That would make you legally blind. And if that's you, you can be aided by telescopic glasses or by bioptic lenses. Um, these basically are glasses that have really telescopes attached to them. And devices like this allow some blind people, not all blind people, but some blind people can drive a car. And there are companies who make these and sell these. And here's the, you know, the monocular system for people blind in, in one eye. Here's the classic binocular system for someone uh, blind in two eyes. And, um, but honestly, if I saw this lady driving a car, you know, I'd still want to keep some distance. I'm just... Uh... The way these glasses work and the way all telescopes work is they use a system of mirrors to gather and focus light. When light is gathered and focused, the blind can see. Anybody know where I'm going with this? Right? The, the, uh, you know the New Testament includes several stories of Jesus healing people who are physically blind. It's one of the great miracles of Jesus. You may also remember in the New Testament that Jesus uh, spoke about spiritual blindness. There's a very real sense that every human being needs to have their sight restored by the living God. Even religious people. Maybe especially religious people. Whenever Jesus spoke about spiritual blindness, most often he was talking about or to religious people. 
and he would get kind of fiery about this, you may remember. One place, he said this, you blind guides. He's talking about the religious leaders of his day. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. And this is just terrible because swallowing a camel is very bad for you. And it's, it's, it's actually, uh, the reason this is so striking is the people he's talking about knew the Bible. They read the Bible. But they applied it in such narrow, legalistic, minutia ways. They were straining at gnats and they were missing the larger overarching principles of the Bible. They were, they were straining at gnats, but they were swallowing camels. Uh, this is first century humor, friends. Uh, when Jesus spoke, he used hyperbole. He used humor in his teaching. And here he's warning us against the misuse of the Bible. People who apply the Bible in mechanical, minutia ways and miss its overarching principles. And this is a great danger for every student of the Bible. And I want to speak to this directly in just a moment. But for now, let me just say the Bible is a light that can restore sight. It can correct your vision. And you begin to see your world and your neighbors and your circumstances through the lens of Scripture. The Bible is a light. It illuminates the path, it reveals my heart, and it relieves my blindness. Right? It, it illuminates the path, it reveals my heart, and it relieves my blindness. Now let's talk about where this metaphor falls short and how we can avoid straining at gnats. I've heard people say the Bible is like the owner's manual for your life. And I know what they mean, but I do not think this is the best metaphor for the Bible. Because how often do you use your owner's manual? Right? You pull it out when you're like, where's my spare tire? Uh, you pull it out only in an emergency. And people do use their Bible this way. It stays on the shelf, and then an emergency happens, and they pull it off and try to find something to apply to them. And there are instructions in the Bible. There is doctrine in the Bible. But this is not primarily what the Bible is about. The Bible is primarily a story. It is a narrative. It has movement. It has a plot. It's going somewhere. It is a story because God chose for it to be a story because God is a person, not a doctrine. Now, when we say God is a person, of course, this does not mean that God is a human. God is not a human. God is above humanity. But theologians have been insistent that God is a person, that God has personhood, that God has character and relationship and love. So the Bible is primarily a story. It is the story. It is the story that makes our stories make sense. Our stories will have weight if they become part of this grand story. You miss this, and you miss your story. You miss this, and you remain blind. So a lot of people ask questions like this. If the Bible really is God's Word, if the Bible really is a light, then why does it allow practices like slavery or polygamy or other things? A lot of people in our own country 
160 years ago used the Bible to defend slavery. They used the Bible to defend all kinds of terrible things. So it's really important to understand the kind of the nature of the kind of book that the Bible is. We need to understand this. The Bible, for example, is quite different than the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, we're told in their idea, is that this book descended from heaven to earth for Joseph Smith, all is one uh, document, all together, all at one time. The Bible is not this way. The Bible is not a timeless set of principles that descended from heaven all at one time. It is not a generic, cultureless, timeless blueprint for social utopia. It was written by a particular people for a particular audience in a particular time from a particular culture. And God is going to use that and speak through that to move people along. And if you become a student of the book, you will take this movement very seriously. Part of what we have to keep in mind is the moral baseline for humanity after the fall. It's a very barbaric time. We sometimes think that life is bad in our day, and of course sometimes it is, but what we forget is the 3,000 years of civilizing influence of, among other things, the Judeo-Christian ethic and practice. This time of the Bible is a barbaric age. Infanticide is common practice. Women are generally treated like possessions. Masters could kill their slaves without any accountability at all. Religion is mostly superstition because people do not know God yet, and so religion is separated from justice and ethics. It sometimes involved temple prostitution or human sacrifice. God has to start with where people are, and so that's what he does. In the ancient world, slavery was everywhere. There was no social uh, safety net. There was no welfare. If somebody went into debt, uh, selling, them, selling themselves into slavery could be their only uh, form of survival. A slavery-free society was not an economic or a social possibility. Nobody was talking about it, and that is the world into which the Bible comes. Now, here's what the writers of Scripture did do. In the Old Testament, they constantly were limiting or undermining the institution and practice of slavery. They limit how much power a master can have over a slave. They say a master cannot inflict any kind of punishment. Uh, they say that slavery cannot be perpetual. A slave can only be kept for seven years in biblical law and then must be released. And when this happens, the master has to give resources to the freed slave. This was not happening anywhere in the world, and it's starting with people of the book. So compared to the ancient culture, the Old Testament is constantly undermining the practice and power of slavery. And then when you get to the New Testament, it's even more pronounced. Paul, in the book of Philemon, writes to a guy named Philemon about his slave Onesimus, and he says, instead of punishing him for running away, you should set him free, because he is like a brother to me. And then Paul writes to the church at Galatia this famous line, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cahill says this is the first egalitarian statement in human literature anywhere. This is the first egalitarian statement in human history, and it's in the Bible. 
So we see this trajectory of the Old Testament limiting and undermining the institution. We see that move through the New Testament, and we see where it's going, and eventually the people of the book realize that slavery is not an expression that God wants for human flourishing, and it needs to be abolished. That's precisely why the great abolition or anti-slavery movements were primarily led by Methodists and Quakers and by people like John Wesley and William Wilberforce. And there's very real similar dynamics around issues of polygamy and even around treatment of women. If, if you don't get the whole story of the Bible, you'll never understand that and you'll end up picking and choosing at different places in the story and you will end up straining at gnats and missing the overarching wisdom. The Bible is a light. It illuminates the path. It reveals my heart. It relieves my blindness. And let me add a fourth one to send you home with. It obliterates the darkness. It obliterates the darkness. People of the book, people who take the Bible seriously, have been in the front not only of the abolition and civil rights movements, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but in the forefront of education and medicine and orphan care. People illumined by the Bible started the first hospitals, the first orphanages, the first colleges, motivated and informed by the Scriptures. So I have this, uh, this picture in my mind. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase, anybody ever said to you, man, you look like a deer in headlights? You ever heard that phrase? I'm not sure what that means. Uh, uh, I think it's meant to mean you look surprised right now or you look, you know, taken off guard. Has anybody ever, ever literally seen a, a deer in headlights? Anybody? It's a pretty short view because a deer in headlights becomes a deer in headlights. Uh, state, in the state of Michigan, 50,000 reported accidents annually between vehicles and deer. And it's very sad to see these beautiful creatures um, you know, uh, damaged, hit by cars. But the image is this. Imagine before us, not these beautiful creatures, but imagine out on the road uh, evils in our world that we would like to expose. Evils that we wouldn't mind crashing into. Racism, oppression, greed, hunger, right? Even subtle forms of oppression are exposed in the light of the Scriptures. And in that light, racism cannot stand. Oppression cannot stand. The Bible is a light. It illumines the path. It reveals my heart. It relieves my blindness. And it obliterates the darkness. May this be ever more true in us as we allow ourselves to be guided and shaped by the Bible. By the way, my daughter did pass her written driving test. Yep, she's got her driving permit now, or what they call in Michigan, a level one driver's license. Uh, here's the view from the other side of the car. Yep. Uh, we're, we're are, we are very, very proud of her. Um, a little bit terrified, but mostly, mostly proud of her. But what I'm even more proud of is the way she is learning to read, interpret, and apply the Bible. This young lady reads her Bible every night, not prompted by us, 
completely on her own. She was the first person in our family to want to sign up for the 30-day Bible challenge. Her young life is being shaped by the Scriptures. And I want that for her, and I want that for you. Will you pray with me wherever you are? Well, God, we pray with the psalmist when we say that your commands are always with us and make us wise. They give insights. They keep our feet from every evil path. How sweet are your words to our taste, sweeter than honey to our mouth. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We confess, Father, that there have been times that we have ignored the Bible or studied it in ways that brought knowledge but not light. We have strained at gnats. Forgive our willful blindness. Shape us by your word. Allow your scriptures to be the lens through which we see all of life. We pray for those who have accepted the challenge to Go to your word more frequently, more responsibly, and more expectantly. Take us on an adventure in your spirit. This we pray in the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen, amen.